0: Welcome to Witch Talks, a series for spiritual seekers, witches and enlightened souls. I'm Hannah the Suburban Witch, an intuitive tarot reader, astrologer and eclectic witch and I hope you're ready to get up close and personal with your favourite witches. In this episode, I'm chatting with Mortalis, an internationally recognised expert in the field of pagan funeral rites. They are a lineaged third degree Gardnerian high priestess, mortician, medium, necromancer and witch. I'm so looking forward to sharing Mortellus's work and wisdom with you today, so let's get into it. Mortellus is joining us via Zoom all the way from North Carolina. Hey, Mortellus, welcome to the show. It feels
1: strange to uh, be called internationally recognized, even though we're talking
0: across nations right now. It sounds so funny. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. Now, do you want to start off by telling us a little bit more about the exact work that you do in the witchy world?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, that's, I'm, I'm very terrible at what I call the the used car salesman pitch. I don't, I don't know how to do that at all. Um, what exactly do I do? I think exactly what I do is juggle paperwork and emails from people all day. Mm-hmm. I think uh, probably most of what witches and morticians do is probably far more boring than people think. You spend most of your time like planning and filling out documents and that kind of stuff. But uh, I guess on the on the, the low end, the, the flat answer is that it's about always being available at any moment. You, you have to be ready for a death or someone grieving who needs you or someone in your coven who has a question or needs you it's it's you you just have to be present you have to always be holding space
0: for whatever that is so i guess that's what i do I hold mm-hmm. space <laughs> That's beautiful. Now, before we get into a little bit more on the details around all of that, I wanted to take a quick squidry ditch into your birth chart. So it wasn't surprising at all to me, knowing what you do, that you are a rising Scorpio. So I'm just going to go through your big three. And one of the big placements is your rising sign. Now your rising sign is it's what you do. It is how people see you. It's often what you actually do for a career as well. So being a rising Scorpio. Uh, usually this is someone who would work in something that's a little bit occult-like, there's very occult vibes. Um, Terms of careers for people with a Scorpio rising is things like paranormal investigators, detectives, psychic. It definitely has those strong occult vibes like your necromantic work, which all of that mediumship definitely flows in with that. Now, It has a draw to the dark and the mysterious and secrecy is often a trait of those with displacement as well so you never quite get the whole story and can be a little bit guarded as well i have to say i i'm deeply curious about this because anyone who's
1: interacted with me online knows that i say often that i don't know anything about astrology I'm, i'm very in the dark about it but uh you said something that might uh this might be interesting to you but i also do as a hobby um I do uh cyber investigations in mm-hmm. which i help uh in trap is a terrible word mm-hmm. uh, uh, child predators so that's that's a big part
0: of my time as well so <laughs> fantastic that is excellent work i'm sure it's very difficult work it sounds like all of the work that you do would have a lot of uh, uh nitty-gritty dark side to it that can be very difficult to deal with but Yes, the investigative side of the Scorpio rising there, absolutely, you're you're doing what you're here to do. So you're right on the money. And then your sun sign is what people often hear as their star sign, which is in Taurus. and it's in the sixth house. Now, what this tells us is that you express yourself the best when you're providing people with a feeling of calm and stability and you probably won't like to rush about your day, but instead have a steady and predictable routine. So that feeling of calm and stability, I've seen that a lot in people who do uh, forms of mediumship as well, especially when people are grieving. And you said holding space that's very, very in line with that Taurus energy being very grounded, resented, and just patient with people, allowing them that space that they need to have. And then the last one we'll go through is your moon sign. And your moon is your emotions. And your moon is in Leo in the ninth house. So this one often has, you know, you need to be authentic and you need to be recognized for doing the things that you love and being who you really are, okay? So if you're not being authentic, you're going to feel really unstable around it. So when it comes to work in the world, good reviews or hearing good feedback around what you're putting out there is going to be really crucial to your emotional fulfillment. So don't go reading any negative reviews or anything like that. That's going to really crash you down really quickly. Uh, and being in the ninth house, this means that continuous learning and exploring and all of that is key for emotional fulfillment for you. So how does that all sound? How does that sit with you?
1: That sounds, it's weirdly accurate. Just this week, I, I went on a bender reading really terrible reviews. <laughs> so I was on it was on twitter like please give me positive feedback because i feel terrible about myself right now and this is
0: awful <laughs> Yep. Yeah, that's the worst thing you can do with a, a leo moon <laughs> you want to be long you long to be adored and admired for what you do so you want the good stuff not the bad stuff what you were saying about um
1: stability and those sorts of things um I've, I've said for years that, that I always wanted my home to be a sanctuary somewhere that anyone would feel safe and welcome. And I, I work really hard to achieve that, probably even at my own like, mental cost, because it's very important to me that other people feel safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that does really resonate. Yeah, I, I was expecting, I was expecting you to find like lots of super embarrassing stuff. So I was, I was ready
0: for that. <laughs> no, no, I never embarrass anyone. Um, I was with, prepared. That, with that Taurus placement as well. So yes, the calm and stability, uh, aspect is there. And I find people with that placement can often make really good therapists as well. So just really good at yeah having that safe space for people to be who they need to be in that moment. It's a really, really nice placement. That's a big part, or it, it can be a big part of
1: uh, work in funeral services. Uh, things you can do are, are take additional courses in grief counseling and those sorts of things. You'll find that a lot of, of people in that field are also grief support counselors or, or grief support workers.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so
1: you're very right. That's it's,
0: it's very accurate. Well, it sounds like you're living in alignment with your birth chart as well. <laughs> So thank you for letting us look into that. Now, you were just talking about your work in the the death industry. So how did you get into your work as a mortician? How did you get into that role? Oh gosh, Um, people ask me that question often, but in different
1: ways, which is funny. Um, I don't think I got into it per se, and I don't really think I had a choice to be doing it. without going too far into it. And, and definitely anyone who's curious can listen to other podcasts that have been on or, or read my book. That would be awesome. Um, but I, I died when I was young, when I was five years old, I, I was in a coma for four days and required resuscitation, which failed. Mm-hmm. I was declared dead and was dead for about eight minutes, give or take before spontaneously reviving. Mm -hmm. and I often say that uh, I'm totally willing to accept that my experiences during that time were like the the coma adult hallucinations of a five-year-old but what I experienced was descending into the underworld meeting a deity that I still work with to this day and it, it was a very personal experience it was a very Powerful experience. It was a situation in which I grew up in a, a fundamentalist cult. That's a that's a fun snippet of my backstory, um, and by fun I mean awful. But um, very isolated. No, no books, no television, no radio, just no media input. So for me to have this experience that was so discordant with anything I had been taught or that I had seen, um, to meet this deity that I could have described to you and told you their name and, and anything about them that you wanted and to not find them in a book until I ran away from home at 17. Like it, it was so powerful and real for me, t- tangible and edible that I, I couldn't deny that it was a a real experience for me. And so taking that and confronting the fact that not only did did I at least perceive it as real and factual, that
2: this deity gave me a task. They said
1: you gave up your life because what you were experiencing was too hard. You have to go back and understand that your life is a gift for me now. And that
2: like, you can't, you
1: can't be afraid anymore. You have to know that, that you're stronger than your surroundings. And just coming back with this sense of purpose, you know, you fall into a coma, a terrified five-year-old who's been terrorized and wake up still a terrified five-year-old being terrorized by awful adults, but knowing inside that none of that mattered, that I would make it out the other side and that I had to fulfill these requirements given me. I recognize that the life that I have now is, is borrowed. It's, it's a gift. I, I joke often that I'm a revenant. I'm not, I'm not a living person. I'm a returned person. And um
2: you know those tasks in a lot of
1: ways were being there for the dead and dying. Mm-hmm. So early on I the same year I ran away from home I started volunteering for hospice. I've been doing that ever since in some capacity just over all this time. And that's been almost 20 years now just crazy to think about. But um, there came a point when that wasn't enough for me. So I didn't feel like I was fulfilling that requirement. So I started delving into clergy work, uh, became an initiate of the Gardnerian tradition um, through that and and through growing myself as a priestess of the tradition, I I was able to put myself in a position to function as the celebrant or or provide funerary rites, last rites, and those sorts of things. But that still wasn't enough. I I've always been pushing further and further into what what I could do to serve in that role that was asked of me. So eventually, that meant. Going off to mortuary school. I took two degrees at once actually, which is awful, and I don't recommend it. <laughs> I took a degree in education at the same time because I knew that that whatever I was doing, I was always going to be trying at least to teach or guide, and and that was a smart choice really because I, I had no way to anticipate what being in mortuary school was going to be like, and and what a really truly. Uh, repressively Christian environment it is, particularly in the United States at least, where almost every tradition we have surrounding death is sort of couched in in Christian values. So taking that frustration and, and wanting to be able to go off and start a career in that field and make a difference, that was really important to me. But of course, the universe often has different plans. So <laughs> I graduated and was thrust immediately into a pandemic. So <laughs> I have been volunteering in medical reserve corps, um, disaster mortuary services and for health and human services since the beginning of the pandemic. So um, I do wonder if, if the gods ever plan for me to have a career of it in the traditional sense, if, if that makes sense. Like it's... Like, I'm not certain it's ever something that I'm intended to be able to do in a way that might support me, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm curious to see where that will go, really. That is quite a journey. Thank you so much for sharing. I can definitely empathize on some level in terms of the Christian upbringing. I myself was brought up in a very strict Pentecostal. Church upbringing, so I understand on that level. It doesn't sound quite as strict as what you had to go through. Did that uh, near-death experience? Did that follow similar routes of other people's descriptions of their near-death experiences? Have you read up on that?
1: Yes, and in doing, I I did learn something. So, a near-death experience is defined as as someone who experiences something that puts them on the brink of death, right? What I learned in my reading was that's not what I experienced at all. Um, what, what happened to me, they, they call that the Lazarus phenomenon, where you are declared dead and spontaneously revived. I'd been calling it a near-death experience for most of my life, and then only sort of discovered that in the last couple, like in the recent years, but um, I don't think it always lines up very well at all. <laughs> really a lot of people when they describe a near-death experience they'll talk about uh, like a light at the end of the tunnel that kind of imagery that definitely was not my experience Mm -hmm. um I do describe it in my book if anyone's curious but for me it was if if you'll forgive me being folksy it was like falling backwards through my ass (laughs) into (laughs) into the darkness into Mm -hmm. this hug of emptiness Mm. and uh, at the risk of sounding very friendly toward the idea of dying it it was good and comfortable and welcoming and i could have very happily stayed there i didn't get to but um i don't fear it i look forward to that comfort again someday
0: Mm. I've, I've read quite a few NDE uh, stories and uh, people recounting how they felt and often that I see a, a similar theme of being comfortable and at peace and it not really being such a scary thing as they would have anticipated it to be. So that sounds similar. Uh, but yeah, they can be wildly different as well between each other. So that's very, very fascinating. Thank you very much for sharing.
2: I felt a lot like... Trying to find words. It, seem,
1: it seems to me sometimes like we have this idea of being dead as being this really stationary state of being. Um, your soul is singular. You go to this place that can be defined in this exact sort of way. Time moves particularly. But that was not what it was like for me at all. It felt more like shattering outward i've I've come to really uh, adopt and resonate with uh the fractured soul like you might see in comedic practice where you see the soul in nine parts um because feeling that fracturing of the self was such a big part of that experience but but also time moving very strangely it felt like i was there forever lifetimes um but also it did not feel like a stationary place at all, where we talk about places like heaven or hell or Hades or Folkfanger or, wh- or whatever place that the dead might go, and we think about them as these very contained spaces. But the underworld I experienced was as big as the world, as big as the universe, and filled with infinite places and lands. It, it was a place to explore and to be and to have new experiences not just a place to rest, which, I don't know, I think a lot of descriptions are missing that because that was such a beautiful part of the experience that I had.
0: Mm. Now, were you, were you born a natural medium or did those skills develop after this experience?
1: That's a fun question. Um, I use the word medium to describe myself because I don't have another word. I don't believe I am a medium at all. I say this pretty often to anyone who will listen to me. <laughs> Um, I think mediums are amazingly talented psychics. A medium to me is, is someone that has a a full grasp of all their psychic senses, right? That ability to connect on, on multiple levels. I I joke that I'm just still a little bit dead.
2: (laughs) I think that there's this,
1: there's this sort of in between, right? We have this idea of liminal space, like the veil and and I always describe it like you're you're having a family gathering, you have someone in the living room, someone in the kitchen, and the person in the living room is is yelling to the kitchen to tell them they want a beverage
2: or something. They might hear you.
1: The medium um, is probably a little bit louder,
0: mm-hmm. more capable.
1: I'm just leaning in the doorway. I just happen to be able to see both places.
0: You and have I don't a think, foot in each door
1: right (laughs) i don't think it's the same as being a medium at all um it's far more mundane and (laughs) Mm -hmm. it just feels really natural to me in a in a way that that i i can't describe but um to fully answer your question i did develop that that particular ability after dying
0: Mm -hmm. and Uh, with your mediumship so not being like the traditional mediums that you're describing. Do you you see spirits? Are you clairvoyant in that aspect? Can you hear things? How does it come through for you and what makes it different to what you class as as other mediums?
1: I experience the dead as plainly as I am experiencing you right now, which Mm -hmm. I always say to people, be rational and skeptical question everything because if you can disprove something for yourself that it, it makes your magic more amazing to you when it can't be proven mm-hmm. i spent a really long time concerned that i might be schizophrenic actually because i had these full these full-bodied apparitions all the time
2: yeah.
1: um but i can happily report after years and years and years of therapy every single week um that that is not the issue here so i i don't know how to define it aside from
0: from that Mm -hmm. so for anyone who's listening that might not be aware of, I guess, the scope of mediumship, and whilst I can't speak fully because I am still developing my mediumship, it is not, I, I don't even know if I could class myself as saying medium yet, although I'm trying to claim that title, and know it helps. What I see is, I guess, shadowy, and it's within my mind's eye. It is, is never that full clairvoyance right in front of you and if you've ever watched any of my youtube videos on developing your psychic senses in my clairvoyance video i do say that seeing things with your physical eyes is very rare it is it is a gift absolutely and generally not one that you can develop is what i've experienced you can develop the mind's eye you can develop those psychic senses and attuning yourself to the other side But to see a full body apparition like that, not in a haunted sense, as in you're going to a place that is haunted and active, that's a little bit different. But being able to see them like this, I would say that's that's an absolute gift. And it does sound like you have a foot in each door of the underworld and the world that we're in right now. So that's incredible.
1: I joke that it's kind of like always being in a department store. (laughs) It's a lot of of noise all the time. And, and you get very good at warding because that's the only way you're ever going to get any peace or sleep. So, so my, my land is warded in a particular way. Anything can come and go on, on the land. Um, my home is differently warded so that only benign or benevolent or familiar, uh, entities can come and go there, but certain rooms are no access
2: mm-hmm. like,
1: like my bedroom so that I can sleep. Um, the bathroom, because for a while I had this one particular house guest who was just like always in there and like, dude, what is your thing? <laughs> <Just go away." laughs> um, my office, which is actually a garden shed that I'm disguising as an office, um, is sort of a quarantine space for spirits I'm working with that might be problematic so that they're not like harassing my children. Mm. A very busy
0: place now in terms of those boundaries and those wards that you're putting up are they what style of boundary or ward are you using is it uh uh, purely mental where you're placing you know visualization style wards are you using sigils like what sort of uh ones because I get a lot of questions from people saying how do I keep things out or how do I shut this door or how do I do that and I know everyone has different ways that they like to do it so I'm curious to hear what you use So that's a really good question that no one has ever asked me. Um, So
1: working with the dead a lot doing necromancy means I'm constantly going to be calling spirits. They're constantly going to be attracted to me. So this is going to be an active space. And for example, I have a fire pit on my property that's um, ritually consecrated as a necrodevnon, which means it's sort of an opening to the underworld. Things can come and go. But I don't want them to just wander out into the world, into my neighborhood, because I don't know what I'm letting in through that elevator. So I have wards on three levels the ethereal plane, the material plane, and the astral or celestial plane. So those recreated boundaries on each level. And on each level, they're very different. So on the physical plane, I have, um, a combination of techniques, which include witch bottles that contain sigil work surrounding the property, um, a little ceremonial magic sprinkled over that. Um, my home is the same, but I also use some folk techniques like um, the roofs, the ceilings in my home are painted with haint with blue paint. You see that in the South, if you're unfamiliar, um, you see that commonly in the south uh, you might walk into a porch and the ceiling will be blue um, the reason for that is that the color is associated with water which spirits can't necessarily cross
0: it's sort of a, a visual trick that sort of thing i'm aware of, of that tradition but i'm sure any of my listeners from australia probably aren't i only know that from my deep obsession with louisiana and i have lived and worked there for a little bit as well <laughs> um, but also I've, I've done things like my home
1: is have you ever used like the mirror box spell technique for like reflecting and containing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the entire house is a mirror box. What I've mm-hmm. done is crushed mirror glass and stirred it into the paint along with herbs and other materials to painted my home with mm. so the entire house is a box. Um, each room has different materials combined. On the ethereal plane, um, I have a, a spiritus or spiritus spirit box buried under my fire pit, which contains materials that I can access when uh, doing underworld pathworking. Um, and I've used those materials to build physical wardings in that space. In the astral or celestial, which is more inclined to uh, mental faculties Um, it's there that I've used, um, uh, mind built boardings. Mm -hmm. So different layers, layers and layers. It's like an onion here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. I interrupt your listening pleasure to ask you if you're enjoying this podcast. I ask because this series is a labor of love, and if you like what you're hearing, consider signing up as a Patreon supporter to see its continued success. Not only will you receive exclusive access to my private Facebook group, but also monthly live readings and moon ritual worksheets. Head over to patreon.com forward slash suburban witchery to sign up now. And now back to the show. And with the uh, entities that you're working with, are they mostly human spirits, uh, either earthbound or on the other side, or do you have other entities like uh, what I term service to self or service to other entities that might be non-human in nature? Do they come through as well? So I
1: I will say for your listeners, I, I tend not to use the word ghost or spirit very much because they can either be meaningless or mean too much Mm -hmm. um i like the word eidolon which is a greek term which is particularly um and the soul of a human or animal living or dead Mm -hmm. there there are some methods and situations by which portions of your soul might be disincarnate from your body at any given time. Uh, for anyone curious about that, I have a video or two for streaming on my website, Um, necromancy for beginners. And, and there's a part two to that, which you might find some, some stuff in there, but, um, so those entities I work with a lot, I do also work quite a bit with elementals, familiars, daemons, whatever crosses my path, servitors, that sort of thing. Um, I don't necessarily have any difficulty seeing them like I do other entities. Um, Some daemon, elementals, and um, most particularly servitors are much harder for me to comprehend. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of them in the way you're aware of the dead. Understood,
0: understood. Are these servitors that you've created or someone else has created that wander into your path?
1: That others have created.
0: Mm-hmm. I've made them. I don't have any problem with it. Mm-hmm. And for those listening, a servitor is basically a an entity that you would create to do your bidding or to do something that you're wanting to. It's almost kind of like creating a consciousness that does what you're wanting it to do, and usually you would call it back after you have finished what it's what it's here to do
1: servitor is like um it's like the name brand tulpa <laughs> it's
0: like, right? yeah yeah now you are a parent as well so do your children know what you do do they understand the level what ages are we talking and how do you explain that to them my
1: children are three years old they barely understand what's going on anywhere but... yeah yeah um but they do have awarenesses um luna is definitely aware of familiars and aware of eidolon she would point them out um I, my familiar spirit is uh takes the form of a crow very often and she will see them in the house and will often be like trying to feed them her breakfast it's like sweetie they cannot eat your donut <laughs> they can't mm-hmm. But, but that's sort of interesting to watch. Um, Sorin, on the other hand, doesn't seem to be able to see things, but he has very sensitive hearing, so he mm-hmm. he might respond to or answer something spoken out by, by an eyelon that I can see.
0: Um, so he, I'll just clarify quickly. You see them clear as day. Can you hear them clear as day as well? Mm-hmm. Okay. I,
1: I smell them. One of them uh, was one of our pretty permanent house guests is my spouse's grandmother who passed away a few years ago and um they have a very distinctive perfume which our house always reeks of which is terrible Mm -hmm. (laughs) please stop (laughs) please stop with that
0: do you think she does that on purpose to announce her presence or is it yes but i think
1: also for this particular person it was something that she associated with with beauty and being refined. Mm-hmm. So she presents herself in death as she would have in life. So,
0: yeah, beautiful. All right. So let's go on to your book now. So, you've written a book called Do I Have to Wear Black Rituals, Customs, and Funerary Etiquette for Modern Pagans? And it hit shelves earlier this year. Now, what was it that inspired you to write this particular book? Oh, gosh. I have the worst reason for I'd hated a lot of stuff. <laughs> That's a great reason. Anger is a great fuel for making change and making action. I should have brought it for a prop to have here, but
1: uh, when I was a student in mortuary sciences, we were assigned this particular, there's a particular class everyone has to take. And essentially what you're meant to learn is the funerary rites and customs of any faith group that you might encounter. And we're assigned a book, which is about, oh gosh, it is literally not as thick as this legal pad. It's about 54 pages. If you count the like empty leaves and the glossary and index, it's, it's a pamphlet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm flipping through it after I get it and realizing that everything in there is, is Abrahamic faith practices.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's a little section in the back for Fraternal organizations like Freemasonry, there's a section for Muslim funeral rites, which they spell in the very racist spelling of Muslim, (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is terrible. And lastly, Buddhism. Buddhism has an interesting header in it in that particular book. It notes that at the time of printing, there are about 130,000 Buddhists in the United States. Otherwise they would not have had to have included them. Mm-mm. I looked up that statistic for the date of printing of that book, and it's wildly inaccurate. There are far more, mm. <laughs> far more Buddhists in the United States at that time. But at the time of printing, we knew there were about a million pagans in the United States, and we were not included. You give someone a number or a fact or a date, and it's a marker, right? It's a measure. And it became a measure for me that it wasn't that we shouldn't have been included. It was that they didn't want to include us. And that stuck with me. And I became this really difficult, obstinate student that <laughs> just every project I turned in, I, I found an excuse to make it about paganism. Uh, there came a point when uh, certain instructors were refusing to grade my, my homework, my assignments. It, it became quite a standoff. Actually. Wow, it sounds like it got quite political for you there. It did. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a stubborn ass. Well, I'm told that's a trait of of Torian. It's a Taurus trait, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm told. But I wanted to say something about what I felt was missing, and it, it was very problematic to me that everyone around me that I saw being successful was
2: white, male,
1: Christian, they all fit this mold. Everyone on the funeral board in our state fits that mold right now. Um, and just sort of seeing how people didn't fit. I, I recall sitting in a, in a student lounge. I was reading or something and, and I was listening to the head of our department talk about um, how when funeral homes call asking to, that he recommend a student for, for residency or apprenticeship, that they ask for someone male. And he was talking about how it was getting more difficult to accommodate them because they had so many students incoming who were feminine. And just hearing that is
0: it's ridiculous. <laughs> it sounds like you're describing something from the 1950s. <laughs> Yes, um, most of the textbooks that we use even today in Mortuary Sciences were printed in the 50s,
1: which is ridiculous. But um, I was just, I was angry about all these things. Here I was digging into this program in the first place so that I could serve my deity better and realizing that it was always going to be a fight. And that's fine, I'm here for it. I, I will fight for something I care about. But... It was it was hard it was really hard so I I said as much one day to a lovely tolerant <laughs> tolerant of me Llewellyn editor that I'm so grateful to have in my corner and uh as is the way sometimes you just get lucky and I was lucky enough to sort of fall backwards into acceptance and uh Llewellyn took a chance on me, even though I'd never really written before, aside from poetry, which I was a huge soft spot for, and I'd been blogging for a while. But here I am. I, I was still in the middle of finishing up all these requirements as I was writing this book. I was in this pandemic, The twins were not that old. I'm like, I'm healing a C-section, raising newborn twins, pandemic volunteering and writing this book.
0: (laughs) That is a lot. It was a lot.
1: It was very hard. It was, um, I had to like rip that book out of my flesh. It's a miracle that it is comprehensible. (laughs) But I knew it needed to exist. It needed to be something that could fill the void for for those students or for those families and I learned very recently this week that that there's a contingent of of folks um who really don't like my book because I I I make a comment in there about families checking the credentials of anyone that they're hiring to work with them and um folks in the the death midwifery field found that troubling in my phrasing and and I am sorry that they're bothered by it and super bummed out. But the, the honest reality is that I don't think that's a bad thing to check up and understand what someone's offering us. But I really didn't write this book for that community either. I wanted it to be for death care workers who are sensitive to the issue, but don't know how to respond to these families and don't know what they need. I wanted it to be for families who were trying to understand what choices are available to them or what, what they can ask for. I wanted it to be for clergy who are, are struggling to prepare rights for someone who is outside their own faith. I was trying to create a resource and hopefully it, it
0: fills that need. I, I hope. It sounds like you've put a lot of thought and effort in there and there was a really amazing... Uh, intention behind there of actually changing the status quo and challenging that which is fantastic now what what would you say is a typical in a a shortened version pagan funeral rite? like what would you expect going to a pagan funeral what are the sorts of things that would be included that would differ from the traditional christian funeral that we've all seen many times before
1: that's really hard i I get that question now and again from non-pagans in the funeral industry, and because paganism is an umbrella term, and it's Mm -hmm. actually really bad at being an umbrella term, not everyone sits tidally under it, um, that's really hard to answer because we're talking about dozens, if not hundreds of groups, and they can be so varied. Um, I I do think some fundamental differences are that you see families want to be more hands-on with the dead, Um, you see families wanting to have more of their rituals in their home. You see families wanting to keep the dead in their home for longer. Um, as opposed to say, calling the funeral home and getting them out of there immediately. Um, you see more acts like candle lighting at services or, (sighs) Ritual meals, which might be held by the graveside. I think those are sort of common bonds. But they're not that far, I think, from what is expected at a traditional funeral. They just are packaged a little differently, right? What's the difference between a candle you might put on your dinner table for Thanksgiving, or a candle that you use on a menorah, or a candle you light on there on your altar? They're all candles. It's it's how we're using the, the tool. And I think the same is, is true of funeral rites. We're doing a lot of the same things. We're just using different words, presenting them differently. And I do think that's a huge factor in dispelling some of the discomforts that that more conservatives, Christian individuals might have with
0: serving those families. I'm being super boring, I'm so sorry. They're not at all. It It is fascinating. And as someone who has never attended anything other than a Christian or a Catholic funeral and not even that many, I have no idea. And actually when I asked you to, to come on the show, it got me thinking what would I want? I have no idea what I would want. I, I know that personally I'd love to be, I don't know if you've seen, where you can be buried and you grow as a tree, so you feed the tree. That I think is my ideal, um, but as far as an actual funeral or a service or anything like that, it, it's absolutely opened up. So I was very curious as to the different things that people might ask for or the ways it might come through. So thank you very much for sharing. Do you have a, I guess, an idea of your own funeral? Has, have you thought about that?
1: I have, and I, I think like many pagan folk. I'm using that word that is terrible for using. Um, it's kind of like saying cake. We have no idea what kind of cake we're talking about, right? It's just, it just is. Um, I think I have a lot of ideas that I recognize intellectually. I just simply can't have. If I could have any funeral that I wanted, I would love to be kept in my home, uh, my body be prepared by members of my faith group and my family I would love to be wrapped nude in red cloth and piled on to a pyre built of the nine woods and and burned at sunrise right that sounds wonderful but I I don't get to have that I know that it sounds poetic I should say Poetic, uh,
0: morbid but poetic.
1: We have a lot of ideas about what we want and they're often mm-hmm. very funeral pyres or green burials or being at home and, and loved ones preparing us. But the reality is that most people will have to interact with a funeral service worker at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. We don't all die tidally as an elder in our bed. The reality is some of us are gonna be killed or struck by a car or die of an illness that someone doesn't understand. And what does that mean? It means we're gonna be shuffled off to a lab for an autopsy because someone's mm-hmm. gonna to wanna to understand how we died. Could your family take that body home at the end of that day? Yes. Would you want them to suffer it? I've received an autopsied body and it's very hard to look at.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We see them in movies laid out on the coroner's table with their chest stitched, but that is not what an, an autopsy body looks like at all. They return them to you with the top of their head off in a bag. Their organs are in a biohazard trash bag on their chest, which is unsewn. Mm. Their excised ribs are just laying off to the side, like a, like a, a rack of barbecue.
0: It's extremely unpleasant. That sounds very different to what you see in a lot of the television crime shows. I'm currently watching X Files from the beginning, and there's a lot of autopsies there uh, that Scully's doing, and it's definitely not what you're describing. So that sounds really, what is the word? Um, Clinical, sterile, very removed from the person as a human.
1: I think that if we can have that vision of, dying peacefully at home and being cared for by our loved ones and being buried in a park. I think that's beautiful. And if we can have it, we should have it, but it's not often reality. Death is not always pretty. Mm -hmm. I I do think for people listening that you should remember that the wishes that you leave behind, your family is going to view that as, as a law, fulfilling your last request is going to be important to them. And if you're asking for this kind of, Thing, they might give it to you even if it hurts them. So be careful that you're not making a plan B that says, I understand if that's too hard for you, this would be okay as well. Mm -hmm. Have that second option. What's my second option? I know that a lot of the things I want would be very expensive, and I would not want my spouse or children to bear the cost. So my notes say that if they have to have a direct cremation, which is very cheap, I would still like to be burned. But I understand if that's the choice they make. I would still like to be wrapped in red cloth. Scatter me at
0: sunrise. Have you had any uh, communication with your work with the dead in terms of the way that we... uh, pass our body through from this life in terms of burial versus cremation. Has there been any talk about if that makes a difference at all?
1: To Some, it makes a lot of difference to some, it does not. You find that it has been my experience that people have the afterlife experience that they sign on for. Think of your relationship with your gods like a contract of sorts. If you work with the Egyptian comedic Pantheon, you're signing on for the Egyptian afterlife contract, right? Christians have signed up for the heaven and hell contract, which I think is bad for a lot of them because most have not met the requirements of heaven. Mm-hmm. So consider that, what it might mean for what your afterlife would be to make those choices. For a comedic person who strongly believes that preservation of the body means that they get to continue existing in their afterlife, being cremated would be a tragedy, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But for others, it might not matter or might be extremely important to be cremated. So I think that there's that factor. I think a bigger factor is
2: having no
1: no rights, be they religious or not. Um, having no rituals or services is a, is a bigger factor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I see that as a factor in a lot of restlessness. Um, having no marker with your name is another, um, being
0: forgotten is more important than your disposition per se.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you have an example of something that if you were called to, I guess, preside over saying the rights for someone, what's what's something that would usually be said for someone who was using that umbrella term again, pagan? It depends on the person. All things being
1: equal, I, I would recommend to any person to try and determine what that person's practice was, first of all um it's a lot easier for me because I can just ask them if they happen to be there they're not always there for me to ask though so,
0: so for but, a person who followed Gardnerian Wicca is there an example of what you might say
1: I I have a a right that I use in the prep room that I would use for anyone that I that I often say with the dead now I did put rights for all these groups in my book so Anybody can go read those, but um, I have a small rite that I perform and keep a bottle of whiskey in my embalming kit, just a little mini bottle, which I'll tap my finger on, press it at their temples, lay my hand on their chest, and say, The mother of the starless sea has borne thee on this
2: day, and you are become one who knoweth the unknown. That feels so powerful,
0: and I'm really curious if anyone else listening can feel that as well. I, I almost felt the need to close my eyes, bow my head. It felt really powerful, like a really sacred thing. Did you, did you come up with that yourself?
1: It is not dissimilar from an invocation that might have been used for
0: Nuit, um, but the writing and language is my own. And Nuit is the Egyptian god of the night, is that correct? yes is that do you have that as part of your pantheon the egyptian comedic i I keep altars to the morgan who (laughs) is my patron
1: who lifted me up out of the underworld sent me back um i work with anubis um, as they rule over embalming and preparation of the dead (laughs) oh forgive me i've gotten like an eyelash that's terrible um and surprising most people i work with orisha oya mm-hmm. those are my three primary altars and they are wildly disparate um i sometimes work with odin and his mother besla which comes and goes as they choose <laughs> sometimes they're very loud in my life and at other times not at all so
0: do you see these deities the same way you would see? uh someone who has passed on or is it different only if they want me to see them mm-hmm.
1: that it's a very different experience and I feel the same for uh, what's the expression I'm looking for it might be different for everyone if, if you've had any kind of like circle casting and you're, you're calling quarters if you're familiar mm-hmm. um, those guardians of the quarters I have perceived one of them before but not the others mm-hmm. so they're those kinds of entities i think are more in control of whether or not they are perceived
0: understood now for anyone that is listening that would like to you know start on a necromantic style of path do you have any tips or guidance that you would give to them that's a tough one because
2: i feel like necromancy is one of those practices that's it's couched in a lot of stereotypes and a lot of that is
1: born from yeah, as most things are medieval Catholics decide, <laughs> deciding to paint something as, as evil or bad which is hilarious because nobody does more necromancy than Catholics at least we're not out there bedazzling corpses like they are that's like a whole <laughs> that's a whole thing <laughs> but you kind of have uh this mishmash where It's, do you want to read really dusty antique stuff in Latin or Italian or whatever? Or do you want to read the four or five or six modern works that we have? Now, I think bad people can write good books, and I think good people can write bad books. I will say this without making any certain comment. I would be very careful and critical of the modern works out there. Some espouse extremely dangerous acts. Some suggest doing things that are definitely illegal. Um, One that I can think of off the top of my head uses Nazi propaganda as citations. Um, Almost all of them have extremely, extremely heteronormative ideas of
0: magic. So be careful, Mm -hmm. is all that I'm saying. There are some good. I haven't read any of the necromantic works, but I have also heard on the grapevine that a lot of them can have a lot of anti-Semitism undertones as well, which I I don't understand why that is in so many books. It's yes, absolutely the advice to be critical, and I think of all books that you read to be critical and if the author is still around you can ask questions these days you know what was your source or your theory or your idea behind this question what you're reading even if you you know if it comes from a good publisher or if it comes from a good author still question it
1: one one thing that i would say to people is if you're looking at a book you're thinking about it if you are able look at the bibliography Flip and see if there are any citations. If nothing is cited at all, assume that this book is that person's entire opinion, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But if you are a beginner at a topic, it can be very confusing. Go back and read that stuff when you have a really good foundational idea. And then you can sort of see what their practice looks like. And that's that can be really cool Um, if their bibliography is mostly Wikipedia, YouTube videos, whatever. If you would not have been allowed to use it as a citation in grade school, probably bad here. (laughs) Um, If the citations concern you, if you're seeing materials that you would feel really weird about reading, um, those are good giveaways that it might not be the book for
2: you. But
1: I would also say that and there's definitely some nugget of of useful to be taken out of, of any work I'm sure I've written awful and stupid things but I would hope you could like have a critical eye around them and, and find the intention of
0: my words there but um I try my best
2: mm-hmm.
0: well, just far, from just from the short moment of talking with you I can guarantee that Anything you're writing is going to be as inclusive and uh, open to everyone and uplifting in the way that you can when you're talking about death. Uh, I can guarantee there's not going to be any racist tones or uh, heteronormative, you know, uh, diatribe throughout there.
1: <laughs> I do my very best. We all have our blind spots. And maybe one day I'll find something that I later regret having said and I'll own that and change it. And that's the best we can do as humans, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But I, do, I do my best. If people are looking for modern materials though, to learn about necromancy, they are hard to find, but they're not non-existent. Um, I do have some videos for streaming on my site. There are some videos for streaming on Witch with me, which you can find on Instagram um, in the workshops I have available on my website, I talk a lot about good source materials if you want to dig into the dustier stuff. And I have a book coming out, which by the time this video airs, it will be coming out very soon, uh, which is all on that particular topic. So I've tried to write something that's really inclusive of a lot of practices. So hopefully that will be a good resource for people.
0: And I, I hope that's my goal. Thank you very much for sharing. That's very exciting news as well. So on that note, where can we find your beautiful book? Uh, where where will we find that? Where is it sold? It's available wherever you like
1: to buy books. If you have a local bookseller you can support or a local pagan shop you can support, definitely ask them if they can order it. That's here. that's the best thing you can do for the world. But if you don't have access, it's available places like everything's at Amazon, right? Uh, Barnes and Noble and other large booksellers online. You can, can find them there. Fantastic. And where can we find you
0: online? I
1: can be found at mortellis.com or if you search a crow and the dead, you'll find me most places. Um, I have a lot of resources that I try and make available for folks. If, if anyone listening is bereaved, we have forums on my website where you can just share and seek support with other individuals. Um, if anyone needs a service from me of any kind, mediumship or reading, anything that I can do for you, or you need to, uh, stream one of my classes, but you have a financial barrier to doing so, please reach out to me and I'll make sure that those are available to you for free. That said, if you're interested in supporting, um, there's a donate link at the bottom of all my blog posts and at the top of my website.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for sharing. And I'll make sure that I've got all of the links in the description box as well. Now, all links uh, for both that and myself will be there. If you'd like to book in with me for a tarot or astrology reading, you can do so at suburbanwitchery.com. You'll also find me as Suburban Witchery on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter and YouTube. Make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to leave us a rating and review, that would be fantastic. As always, I hope you have a lovely day wherever you are in the world today and thank you for listening.